If you have not read the title of this sermon, um, you may do so at this point, and I'll give you a word of explanation. I have to stay here because I don't have the lapel. Uh, word of explanation. Every time I preach this passage or look at this passage, read this passage, somebody makes reference to it, I'm reminded of my youth minister who preached this passage, and as you can guess, the title he gave it was Gary the Naked Man. And so my mind is permanently scarred as I look at that passage every time. And I can go a million different directions, but it always comes back to Gary. And uh, he, uh, he arrived at Gary uh, because he was from Garrison, and he just named him Gary. And um, naked because in this passage you find that he's naked. So thus you have it, Gary the Naked Man. Um, but uh, many things that you could, can say about this passage and a lot that uh, we want to, um, to consider even uh, today. But uh, let's pray, and um, we will uh, we'll do that. Let's do that now. God, thanks for this opportunity to be here, um, uh, to join with your people uh, here in Clarksville, to see uh, testimony, to hear testimony, to, uh, to witness uh, the working of your Spirit uh, in this place, uh, that they are meeting here in a building where once was a field. Father, we thank you for the progress um, and, and the work and how you are going forth. We pray that you would continue to give them favor in this community. And we pray that as we open your word this morning, that you would confront us and you would expose to us those truths that we most need to hear, uh, those truths that we most need to apply to our lives. Uh, that is something that your spirit has to do. Uh, it uh, will not come through wise and persuasive words. Uh, from myself, but it is a work of your spirit. So I pray that as we uh, look at this text, uh, that you would uh, awaken our hearts. Father, I thank you for those that may be here today that are struggling, that it would have been a lot easier to sleep in and to, um, to brush this off or to blow this off, uh, but by your uh, divine providence, you have led them this way, whether they are followers of you or they are just on the uh, journey of faith searching and wondering, I pray, uh, just thank you for them, and I pray that your spirit would, um, would comfort them this day, and that you would uh, uh, give them life. In your name we pray, amen. The Gospel of Mark, you may or may not know, is the shortest of the Gospel accounts. Um, he uses fewer words than any of the other Gospels, but something that's interesting about the Gospel of Mark is that he will oftentimes use vivid words to describe certain scenarios or situations. Mark is the one that will describe when he's feeding the 5,000 that the people didn't just sit down, but they sat down on green grass. Uh, in the story that precedes uh, the, the Gary, um, the naked man, um, it's the story of the, the disciples at sea, and Mark is the one that mentions that they laid that uh, Jesus laid on the pillow. Uh, so it seems like these meaningless little uh, tidbits that he'll throw in there, and yet he's the most sparing in the number of words that he uses through the gospel. But, but what Mark is, is seeking to do uh, through that is, is to call our attention to, to certain details. The book of Mark is structured, and in, in, in really uh, he asks two questions. In the first half of the gospel of Mark, he is asking the question, uh, for the readers to consider, who is this man? 
as Jesus just kind of shows up on the scene there in the first chapter, um, he will introduce situations and circumstances up until about chapter 8 where a number of people will come in contact with him. And the question that he, he, he asks is, is, who is this man? And as a reader, you have to answer that question. You have to identify who he is. Uh, it's kind of a guessing game. And it's real interesting to see who gets it. Who gets it along the way? You have uh, demon-possessed men that get it. You have uh, sick uh, individuals that get it. You have little girls that get it. Um, a lot of people get it. But the group that is continually really slow to get it is the group called the disciples. Just in the passage right above, Jesus calms this storm at sea, and he stands up, says, peace to this storm. And the disciples marvel at this, and they actually say, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And so the last group to really get it is the disciples. Mark sticks this next story in the midst of these three or four other stories in this section, uh, again, to encourage us and to, to challenge us to ask that question. I want us to look at this passage today. And as I talked with Richard uh, over the last couple of weeks, he told me that he was going to begin a series uh, where he was going to be talking about the shalom, the peace of God. And as we are in uh, the middle of this uh, Christmas season, uh, that is the message of Christmas. That is indeed the, the truth of what Christmas is all about. We had a baby that showed up in a stable that entered into this world for the sole purpose of restoring life to the way that it should be, to bring redemption to individuals, and to the whole culture. And we are the instruments that he will use and does use to accomplish that. As I thought about this passage, the, um, the passage does remind me that uh, we live in a broken world. Um, how many of you know somebody yourself are struggling with or have maybe have lost someone in the last year to cancer? Raise your hand. I hate cancer. I hate it. Uh, I have a 29-year-old brother-in-law, has four kids, who's been diagnosed with a geoblastoma multiform. And his life consists of a daily getting up and not knowing whether this thing is just going to take off and go crazy, or he's going to have another full day. And they go six months at a time from MRI to MRI wondering what's going to happen. I have a sister. Talked to my mom last night. And her husband uh, left her yesterday. And met, her son in the, uh, met his son in the driveway and um, is going uh, to leave. We live in a broken world, and you don't have to open the newspaper to figure that out. You just simply look in the mirror, right? We know that we live in a broken world. Sin has done its number and continues to do its number. 
And in this passage, we have perhaps the most graphic depiction of the effects of sin that you find in Scripture. And it's this picture of Gary. Would you stand as we read God's Word together? It's God's Word. It's a story. It's a good story, but it's inspired. And it's given to us so that we can learn, so that we can be encouraged, and so that we can be strengthened in the truth of the gospel. I'm going to read Mark chapter 5 through verse 20. They, the disciples, and Jesus went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and he fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to, see, to, to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons, sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged, to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Let's pray again. Father, as we open your word here, as we read it, this story is, is, is weird and strange and can kind of freak us out a little bit as we start talking about demons and, and real live boogeymen. Um, but I pray that as we open this, that we would, um, we would hear uh, the words that you need us to hear. 
that we would see the truths that leap off this page of your amazing redemption. And may we be reminded in a new and fresh way that by faith we grasp hold of you and your person, realizing that you have grasped us first. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And give us hearts that can absorb the truth of your word this day. Make my words intelligible to those who listen. I pray it in your name. Amen. Several years ago, you could be seated. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to go on a mission trip to Detroit, Michigan. And while I was in Detroit, uh, I had the opportunity to meet a gentleman. And I remember this conversation that I had with this gentleman because it's unlike any other conversation I've ever had. As I sat and I talked and I attempted in my feeble ways to share the love of Christ with this uh, transient who was coming in for a meal that day, we had a very civil conversation going on. He was very cordial, very nice, very kind, very appreciative. And he turned his head and he turned back to me and he began talking to me in a completely different way. And I thought about that as I think about this passage because I believe that that individual was in some way whether he was possessed, I can't, I can't say that. I don't know enough about all this to, uh, to make that accusation. But there was a distinct personality difference in this gentleman as I talked with him. And the venom that came from his mouth and from his face and from his eyes was scary. It's not something we talk about a whole lot. Um, some have said... Uh, the issue of what we're looking at here is, is possibly um, the, area, the area of schizophrenia. I don't know. But what I do know is this, that sin, when it is a part of your life, when it is full-blown, is as graphic as what you see in this passage. We see several things about this individual who is... Uh, demon-possessed. We know that Gary lives in the tombs outside of the city. That's not a clean place. Um, And it was not um, a a place that uh, that anybody, and even in those days, would want to uh, make their residence. But he lived in the tombs. He lived there because they had tried to contain him over the years, and they were unable to do that. The passage even tells us that he was chained up. You know, you can read this passage, and you can jump from verse 2 straight to verse 6, but Mark includes these, these verses in the middle here that illustrate for us and, and really give us this graphic depiction of this gentleman. Lived in the tombs, was chained, broke out of the chains repeatedly, Cut himself with rocks. What do you think he was trying to do there? Suicide. To get rid of the misery and the pain 
and the torture that he found himself in day after day after day. This man was isolated and was put off so that the people didn't have to worry about him, so that the children didn't have to be afraid of this man that would, would no doubt run into the cities and the children would scramble, the people would scramble, the doors would close because this man was there. He was crazy. He was the boogeyman. And yet, what we see in this passage is something extremely beautiful and should be really encouraging to us because we see the intentional journey across the Sea of Galilee by Jesus and the disciples to this region of Gerasene. This region was Gentile country. And it wasn't like the region that they had left. But Jesus enters in to this messy world. The messy world of Gary and these townspeople. What happens? Gary sees him coming. And he comes up to Jesus and he falls down on his face. And he cries out, I am so glad you're here. There's something that has attracted this man, something about Jesus that has attracted him. And he pursues him and he goes to him. And yet at the same time, we see that he's scared to death. Do not torture me anymore. I've had enough. And there's this mixture here. I'm glad to see you, but I'm not glad to see you. Going on in the life of Gary. The effects of sin in our world and in our lives are, are fleshed out in this individual. He is in bondage to something that is much stronger and much more powerful than he is. He cannot defeat it. The people around him can't do anything to defeat it. All they can do is say, go live in the tombs. Go up there. Get away. Stay away. Isolation. We see in this story the effects of sin and its desire is to distort the image of God in as many ways as it can possibly distort it with the ultimate purpose to destroy us. John 17 tells us that the the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And sin does just that whether we're talking about cancer, whether we're talking about pornography and greed and pride, whatever it is, the effects of sin ultimately lead us to this point of destruction, to destroy us, to mar our image. And we need a cure. We pray for a cure for cancer. We pray that we would live in a world where where marriages could be healthy and where, where spouses would be content with one another, where families wouldn't be broken. We pray for those things and we want a cure. And the cure in this passage is very clearly seen. The need that Gary has is, is clearly laid out there and the cure is is clearly laid out there as well. Look at what happens. 
the pigs. That's the strange part of this passage, isn't it? The pigs just kind of show up and kind of take center stage here. What's with the pigs? You know, uh, somebody I, I was teaching this one time, and they said uh, after reading this, they said um, uh, pig prices went belly up that day, uh, and uh, I thought that was uh, clever. But uh, what is um, uh, the the deal with the pigs here? What you understand, if there's going to be a cure, if there's going to be a cure for Gary, if there's going to be a cure for the sin that is a part of our lives and everyone else's, then something has to take place. There has to be a sacrifice that has to be made. All through Scripture, isn't that right? Anytime there's sin, there's a sacrifice that has to be made. In the Old Testament, with Adam and Eve, think about that. Sin entered the world. They used fig leaves. God said that wasn't sufficient. And blood was shed for the first time, and they were given animal skins, and their sin was covered. Sacrifice was made. Noah, death occurred so that redemption could take place, so that peace could be brought back into place. And in this passage right here, we see just not only the graphic depiction of what sin leads to, death and destruction, as the pigs rush down the hill and they die, but we see that it's through the death of these many these death of these many pigs, 2,000, that one man's life is made whole. So there's a sacrifice that's made, isn't it? The pigs. The pigs give up their life. Not willingly, but because they're told to. So that one man now can live. That's a great reminder. It's a great truth. Because what, what happens later in the Gospels is that there's this one man that comes along And he swaps places with the pigs. And this one man dies so that many can have life. And he does it willingly. This picture here of pigs rushing down so that one man can live and go free and not be in bondage and be be reconciled now to God is in many ways a flip side of what happens when Christ goes to the cross and his one death His one life provides life for many. Sacrifice has to be made if sins are going to be covered. If sins are going to be dealt with, there's got to be a sacrifice. And Christ was that sacrifice. It wasn't the townspeople coming up with some strategy of how to to cure uh, this man. It wasn't some clever um, talk or scheming that was going to go on. It was death. Death had to happen. And as we sit here today, as, as, as people who embrace uh, the Word of God, Christianity, if it teaches us anything, it teaches us this. It says that Christ did not turn His head away from the mess, away from the, the cruddiness of life, away from the brokenness. We sing, and we will sing this Christmas season, away in the manger, And it's about a baby that lies in a manger and it says, no crying he makes. Excuse me. We have a baby and all babies cry. And we see a Savior that weeps over lost cities. That weeps over over the death of friends. And we see a Savior that is concerned in this passage over the broken life of a man. 
And he provides him restoration. He brings the shalom of God back into his life and restores this man and makes him whole. And this is the question. What is the daunting issue in your life that you have grabbed a hold of and said, I'm going to be strong through this. I'm going to be tough. And I'm going to make it through it. Yes, with God's help, I'm going to make it through it. I wonder if we're not making a mistake when we, when we speak that kind of language and we approach the issues that we're dealing with in that way. Because what it seems to me, what Scripture calls us to do and what Christ calls us to do is we have to come to the point where we raise the white flag and we surrender. We surrender of our efforts to be tough. We surrender of our efforts to try to make it through it. And then healing comes. It may not be the healing that we envision, but our God is faithful to bring restoration in His timing and on His timetable. We can pretend that we have it all together. We walk in the church. I've been going to church all my life. And I know the game, just like many of you. And you can walk through and the smile that says, I'm fine, is written all over our face. But what's the issue? Is it a marriage that is dissolving? Is it a relationship that is on the brink of, of just falling apart? Is it, is it a cancer is it, is it a health concern? Is it a job issue? What we see in this passage is we see one who's powerful enough not just to calm storms, but to take on the demons. They even bow to him. And to speak a word, and they send them over to pigs, and they run down a, a cliff. And as long as we are, 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 are dredging up the strength in our own lives... We'll never recognize that. And we will never yield to the power of Christ and God in our lives. Gary came desperate. And if we're going to come to Christ, that's the only way you can come, is desperate. In need for a cure. And Christ has provided that cure through his death so that many can live we see a need, we see a cure, but we also see a call. The gospel is there. That's the gospel. There's a need. Christ meets it. That's the cure. But it's not simply to make us better people, to make us nicer, to be more moral, so that we can be polite and kind and generous. That's not Christianity. It may be southern but it's not Christianity. Christianity changes us. It changes us from the inside out. And we live differently. And that's what happens in this passage. We have really two responses in this passage. We have the response of Gary, but we also have the response of the townspeople. Let me talk about the townspeople first. It's interesting to me, and, 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 and I think you can say a whole lot about the townspeople but you have this, this one, Jesus, who enters into their city and takes this man that nobody 
has been able to deal with. And in one fell swoop, he's sitting with clothes on in his right mind. Jesus has come in and done what nobody else could do. And they come back and they see him and they say, yeah, but what about the pigs? You see, pigs, 2,000 pigs was a big hit on the economy. Was Jesus just kind of flippantly saying, hey, I'll just take care of these pigs? Was that the way he was working? I don't think so. I think there was a reason for why he does what he does. We talked about that. But these townspeople had, 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 had some questions to wrestle with. Who is this man that can come in and deal with Gary when we hadn't been able to do anything? And they respond the same way the disciples responded on the sea, with fear. And they say to Jesus, get out. Leave. I don't want anything to do with you. Why is that? It's a theory, but I think it's a good theory because it works itself out in our lives and in families and situations all over the place. Here's the theory. Here's the thought. Gary was no, no doubt, Gary was the bottom of the barrel in that city. He was, I mean, if you're going to talk about being bad, I mean, you didn't get any worse than him. He was it. Something has happened to Gary. Gary's life has been changed. He's no longer the bad one. You know, we say it. I may be bad, but I'm not as bad as him. Well, that's just been changed. Because now you no longer have him to compare yourself to. And when you have Gary in his right mind and you can't compare yourself to him then you're forced to deal with something. You're forced to deal with the realities of who you are. And when you see who you are in the presence of Jesus, you fall on your knees, you get scared, and you say things like, get out of here, because I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to deal with the crud that I'm seeing. I don't want to deal with the stuff that's going on in my life. I don't believe you can deal with what's happening here. And that's just wrong. It's not true. And they miss the opportunity for healing and for restoration when they say, get away to the one who can bring them the restoration that they need. Gary, on the other hand, he's a changed man. And the call that he has is to go. It's no different than any of our calls. It's the same call. Your life has been transformed. You were dead and now you've been made alive with Christ. Go. Tell the story. The story of how God has raised you from the dead. I think the problem uh, for many, many that maybe grow up in the church, is they don't see the graphicness of their sin. Brothers and sisters, Without Christ, we are Gary. And I don't care if you grew up in the church. <laughs> and I don't care if you've got lapel pins running out the door. Without Christ, 
your life and sin leads to destruction. And it will take its hold on you and it will grab you and it won't let you go until it destroys you. The hope of the gospel is what Gary got. He got the message. He was a changed man. And he said, I want to go with you, Jesus. Let's take this thing on the road. Listen, we can go crazy here. Write a few books. I mean, all kinds of things can happen. And Jesus told him something that he hadn't been telling people. Because most of the time when he heals somebody and he does something for them, do you know what he says? He says, shh, don't tell anybody. Just keep it quiet. There will be a time, but now's not the time. But to Gary, when Gary comes and says, hey, I want to go with you. I want to learn more about this, how you did all this. I want to see all these, uh, these things that you're doing. I want, I want to get this. I want to be near you. He says, you can't come with me. He says, I want you to stay here. Why? Why does Jesus tell some people that he heals, that he works in their life? Why does he say, don't say anything? And then why does he say to Gary, go? I think it's all about the kingdom. He's in Gentile territory. And the gospel, it's time for it to go out. They knew that the gospel had come for the Jew, but they needed to know that it had also come for the Gentile. And as I think about this passage, I can't help but understand and can't help but remember that it was Christ who broke into our world first, who broke into Gentile territory and opened the door and made it possible for all of us to be sitting here today to hear the truths of the gospel. And he calls us to do the same thing that he calls Gary to do, to join with him, to mix our blood with his blood, to sacrifice along with Christ only because he's gone first and to serve him. You know, we're, uh, we're excited about, about the opportunity to go to Bowling Green. Sometimes. But I'm just real honest with you. I mean, we've got 12 years of relationships in Murfreesboro. I've got people coming up to me every day to the point of tears going, do you have to leave? I've got kids that I catch on the computer saying, typing in, I don't want to move to Bowling Green. I've got a wife that is, is being um, a very faithful wife and understands, and as we all do, that, that this is, is it's, there's no denying that God has opened the door and is calling us to go there. But let me tell you something. That doesn't make it easy. Why are we going? Fritz, the RUF guy that is going with us, and uh, our good friend. I don't even like him that much, just to say I'm going to go up there and be with him. I'm a Kentucky I grew up in Paducah. I, I love Kentucky basketball. But I cheer for Kentucky just as much down here as I'm going to up there. So that's not it. You may tell you why we're going to Bowling Green. God opened the door 
And the kingdom opportunity is far beyond anything that we can imagine. Twelve years ago, God introduced my heart and opened my eyes to the doctrines of grace and to the gospel. And I'm still trying to get over it. I was a tired, religious kid who tried and tried and tried to earn God's favor. And I got on that treadmill every morning. And I just begged for it to stop so I could breathe and rest. And 12 years ago, I met some friends. And they began to teach me and tell me and explain to me the full everything about the gospel. That it wasn't about my efforts, but that it was about the efforts of Christ. And I was a Christian. I was converted at nine. But it became clear to me 12 years ago. And for the first time, I recognized that I had the freedom to struggle. <laughs> and I no longer had to struggle to be free. And I didn't have to have my act together. And I didn't have to perform. And I didn't have to please people. I didn't have to walk around on eggshells. Because what I realized was that there's a God that, would, that, that left heaven and entered into my mess and loved me and accepted me and believed in me. While I was asleep, not doing anything. And that's good news. It's good news. It's different from every other religion that you find. I had a conversation with a friend of mine the other day who's a Muslim, and I've had conversations with Ahmed a number of times. And our conversation the other day included a lot of questions and a lot of issues. But when it all came down, the thing that is, just, is, is, is really messing with him right now is how God can forgive wrongdoers. Because he believes in a God that does give mercy. But it's a mercy not based on anything. And I told him, I said, Ahmed, I said... I don't like injustices either. Let me tell you, the greatest injustice is the injustice of an innocent man who suffered death for me so that I could have life. The gospel is good news. And there are tired religious people in Bowling Green, Kentucky. There are good churches in Bowling Green, Kentucky. And the gospel is going forth there. But for whatever reason, God has raised it up in our hearts and in front of our face and said, it's time to put a PCA church there. For all of the young Brian Howards that are there who've been trying to earn God's love. So we want to go to Bowling Green and we want to take the doctrines of grace. And we want to tell people, listen, if you're struggling, get in line. <laughs> Join the crowd. 
we want to go to Bowling Green, Kentucky, and we want to tell people and show people involved in their lives about the incarnational ministry of Christ. We want our hands to get dirty in the city doing mercy. We want to go to Bowling Green, Kentucky, a community that influences the surrounding ten counties with the medical profession, with the education, with, with all different areas economically. Bowling Green affects all of the area counties. We want to go to that, and we want to go to the top of the river, and we want to, we want to change what's being put into the river. We, want, we don't want to go to the bottom of the river and start digging out and going, ooh, look how bad stuff is. We want to go to the top, and we want to change what's going into the river and change a culture so that we can change a city. We want to see individuals' lives transformed radically like Gary, who go back out and who are equipped to serve their neighbors and their family members. We want to be a church that stands for truth and that confronts the issues and the realities that we deal with in this life. That's why we're planting a church in Bowling Green. Not because I told somebody I wanted to go to Bowling Green and plant a church, but because God opened that door and we are a couple of crooked sticks praying that God would go and use us to draw some straight lines. And I look forward to this day whenever we're not a part of the Nashville Presbytery any longer. And there's not three Presbyteries in Kentucky, but there's one. Because there have been churches that have been planted all through the south-central Kentucky region in Kentucky. And there have been RUF campuses, that have been, RUF ministries on, on Western's campus. And that then we can bring in an RUF international uh, ministry there at, at Western, where there are over 30 languages spoken in, the, in Warren County alone. And to see the gospel get wheels and run. That's kingdom work. And it's bigger than me. And it's bigger than Richard. And it's bigger than you. And it's bigger than Christ's prayers. But we get to be a part of it. May God remind us daily of our need. Remind us as often as it takes of his cure. And may God plant in your heart a call to be a part of the work of his kingdom as it goes forth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the story of, of Gary, the church planter in the region of Garrison. We thank you for the story of this man whose life was crazy and mixed up and who none of us would even say, yeah, my life's that crazy and mixed up, but in reality it is. Apart from Christ, our lives look the same. We thank you for the cure that we have in Christ. And we thank you for these visible signs and symbols that we're getting ready to stick in our mouth that remind us 
of them. We love you. We thank you for loving us first. In your name we pray. Amen. The amazing thing about this is that there really is a clear intersection between everything Brian just said and everything that we're about to do and the season that we're celebrating and the poinsettias up here and the Advent wreath uh, right there in front of you. Um, This is a time of the year where people gather together, right? Uh, In all kinds of different contexts, in all kinds of different ways, there are gatherings of all different kinds. Even this, this is a gathering. We do this every week, and that's... That's good. That's good. It's good to, uh, to have a time where we can come together and share struggles, uh, to share maybe of some semblance of progress going on in our lives, to, to encourage one another uh, in that, to sort of carry that burden together. There's a benefit, though, also of doing this regularly, of celebrating what we call the Lord's Supper. A reminder of what we have in common, of uh, the sin, the brokenness, uh, the, uh, the Savior, and the common call. Um, this is a meal. Maybe a different kind, though. Um, family and friends, right? Think about it. Family and friends gather around a table, and a host has said, Come, I prepared it for you at my own expense. Come. Come and eat with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let me read verses 23 and following. For I receive, this is Paul's words, helping us to understand something more of what's going on here. For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is a meal. Again, family and friends gathered around a table. Uh, a host has, has set the table, and again, at great expense to himself. Um, it's not a meal, and Paul makes this clear too, it's not a meal, though, that's just open willy-nilly to all. Um, it's assuming some things. It's, it's not that he doesn't have enough to give. That's, that's not it. Uh, it has to do with the relationship that you have with the host. Uh, let me go read on just a little bit more. Verse 27, Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is a real meal, not physically nourishing us, but Jesus promises to somehow, in ways that we just can't even hardly get our minds around, but nonetheless it's true, he promises to nourish us spiritually as we partake of the bread and partake of the cup here in just a minute. It's a real meal, and it's his real presence. We can't see him, but he's really and truly present as the host as we're doing this. Those dual realities, a real meal and a real host, his real presence, means this is really good, but ought to be taken with some level of seriousness too, Uh, and and, 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 and with some reflection. 
Um, if you, all this is to say, is if you know these things to be true, if your heart is resonating with the things that, that, um, that Brian was mentioning just a moment ago, if you've accepted the message of the gospel as it has been described over the course of the morning, this is for you. This is for you. Um, if you're still sort of on the outside looking in and struggling and wondering, I'm not sure yet, and there's some issues unresolved between you and God, and I would say this. Let it go by, the bread and the cup, but don't let the opportunity go by to grab someone and talk to them about these things. Um, take this seriously. It's that good. It's... It's that good. Um, if I could ask the elders to come forward, and uh, they're going to be distributing the, uh, the bread and the cup amongst us, here's how we're going to do this.